in Philippians 2. And the Apostle Paul is going to be writing in verse 5. I'll give you verse 4 from last week for context. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being obedient or being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we come to a very important passage dealing with humility and incarnational love, cruciform love, that is so foundational for the health of a church For the health of any marriage, any Christian relationship, and any Christian's walk. And yet, Lord, the one preaching it is weak and impotent to change hearts. We're asking that your spirit would do the work today by his word that he inspired through the human author. We pray that the full force of this text would come to bear, not because of the eloquence or the talents of the preacher, but because of the omnipotence, the sovereign authority of the Spirit of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1956, J.B. Phillips wrote a piece called The Angel's Point of View. Where he envisions this dialogue between a young, inexperienced angel and an older, experienced senior angel. The former was being shown the the glories of the universe by the older angel. And here's what Phillips wrote. The little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bored. He had been shown whirling galaxies and blazing suns, infinite distances in the deathly cold of interstellar space. And to his mind, there seemed to be an awful lot of it. Finally, he was shown the galaxy, of which our planetary system is but a small part. As the two of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun, And to its circling planets. The senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere. Turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball. To the little angel whose mind was filled with the size of glory at what he'd seen. I want you to watch that one particularly said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? That, replied the senior angel, is the visited planet. 
Visited, said the little one. You don't mean visited by, indeed I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant, has been visited by our Prince of Glory. And at these words, the young angel bowed his head reverently. And at that point, the young angel is led through a series of visions that pointed to the glory of this Prince of Glory's incarnation. And it caused him to stand in awe. And that's my prayer. That would certainly be Paul's prayer for all of us as we consider what is the most important passage in all the Scripture on the incarnation, that is the coming in the flesh of this Prince of Glory. Or better said, the King of Glory. A King who came incognito. And I pray that the grace, the love, the humility of this King and his visitation would reshape, reorient our affections, our commitments to him and to each other. I think that's Paul's goal in laying this out. Now, this visitation could be laid out. You could say it's a drama, if you will, in three acts. In the first act, we see in verses five to six, we uh, we see the uh, the the heights from which this king descended. In verses seven and eight, we see the depths to which the king descended. And next week, in verses nine to eleven, we will see the exalted heights to which he ascended after his work here was done. But the first thing we're going to see is the pinnacle from which this king descended in verses 5 to 6. Note with me, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is a classic example of why doctrine matters. You will often hear people say, uh, I don't like doctrine. I just want to love Jesus Christ. Well, that, that, that Jesus Christ is a doctrinal statement. And so you have some who say they don't like doctrine. Let's just love each other. Let's just love God. Well, if you don't have doctrine, there's no basis for the love. Love can look any way. Any, it can come in any form without any standard, any authority. And then on the flip side, and you see this often in the seminary world, You have those who love doctrine, but so that they can be better equipped to win debates. Doctrine puffs them up. But what you see here is why doctrine matters. God reveals his teachings about himself, his purposes, his plans, in order to transform us. To transform our thinking to transform our affections, to transform our wills, to transform our churches. This is a classic case in point. Now remember here, Paul is dealing with disunity. He's not just laying out a systematic theology. The, uh, the, you know, the 
publishing house in Rome didn't come to him and say, look, we think your systematic theology would, would really sell well in this area because you're, you're quite well known. He's not doing that. There's a real issue in the church, and the issue is disunity. And the reason for the disunity is, he says, selfish ambition and conceit, vain glory. He admonished them in chapter 1, verse 27, just to review. Notice he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Notice, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Note that, with one mind. Then in chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy being of the same mind. And then he says, being in full accord and of one mind. What is that mind? He says here, verse 5, let this mind be in you. And so verse 5 here holds the key to the entire text. Paul says, in your churches, in your church fellowships, and we could say, by extension, in your marriages, in your relationships with other people, with brothers and sisters in Christ, and even with people who do not know Christ, there will always be vulnerability towards disunity. It's a real issue among sinners. And and unity is critical for the Christian, right? It's critical for the church. It's critical for a Christian marriage. Because unity communicates the gospel. It communicates that Christ has indeed conquered over alienation. But we are still subject and vulnerable to disunity. And so in your churches and in your marriages, which are subject to strife and disunity, let what I am about to show you about the Son of God, Paul says, correct and change the way you interact with one another. That's what he's doing in this passage. I'm about to show you something about the Son of God that if you will take heed, it will transform every relationship you have on this planet. He says, have this mind among yourselves. And this mind pertains to Jesus, that is the Son of God's, infinite condescension. Now, what do we mean by condescension? He went low. He went low, which was made possible because of his attitude towards his equality with God, the Father and the Spirit. We see this most clearly in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, The thing to be grasped. Now this word form. He was in the form of God. Is used twice in this passage. In verse 6 we see he was in the form of God. And in verse 7 he came in the form of a servant. Which is better translated slave. Doulos. The word form is the Greek word morphe. If you were spelling that in English. You would spell it M-O-R-P-H-E. It refers to that form which truly and fully expresses the being 
with which underlies it. So it's not just saying he looked like God. It is saying this person is and was God of very God. Again, verse 7, it says he's the form of a servant. It's not saying he looked like a servant. It, he was, he became a servant. And so Paul uses form here to explain that the Son of God fully expresses the essence of God. And yet, in the form of God, Paul says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I don't think that's a clear translation, though it's a faithful translation. What he's saying here is he did not use his equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of when he came in human flesh. The Christian Standard Bible says something to be exploited. He did not count his divine nature something to be exploited. Which obviously is the rebuttal to the person who resists verse 4. Again, verse 4, let each of you look not to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Now, you think about the application of that. That gets in your business. Because we have a rebuttal to that, given a set of circumstances, don't we? Let me look not to my interest, but to the interest of this person. You don't know this person. And so Paul is saying, okay, you think you're too elevated to look to this person's interest over your own. Well, let me give you an illustration. I love it when the writers illustrate for us. We don't have to come up with illustrations. Paul gives you the illustration here in verse 5. So the issue is not whether... Jesus gains or retains equality with God. That's not the issue. Instead, the issue is one of whether the Son of God's attitude and His regard to His divine status. In fact, not only did He not use His divine status to His advantage in His incarnation, He was disadvantaged in His incarnation. I mean, think about the fact that Paul says, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, as a human being, the Son of God was so poor that virtually everything pertaining to him had to be borrowed. Have you ever thought about that? For instance, even a place to be born had to be borrowed. A place to live in had to be borrowed. An animal to ride on had to be borrowed. A boat from which to preach had to be borrowed. A room to, to observe the, the, the Lord's Supper where he transformed that last Passover meal into what we know today is the Lord's table. That room had to be borrowed. Even a, a tomb after his death had to be borrowed. 
Most importantly, he took upon himself a debt in his incarnation that only he could pay. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He gave up the benefits of his glory. Now, let's make sure we understand he didn't lose his glory. Glory is a, an essential attribute of God. The Son of God did not lose his glory. He gave up the privileges and the benefits of his glory because his glory was now veiled behind his human nature. That's what he's referring to in John 17. He speaks and he prays to the Father that the Father would restore to him the glory that was given to him before time began. Now think about this. The one before whom the seraphim hid their eyes. And we know in Isaiah 6 when those seraphim hid their eyes at the glory of God enthroned. John 12 tells us that was the glory of the Son of God that they were beholding. The one before whom the seraphim hid their eyes voluntarily descended to the realm where he was rejected and despised a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. One of my favorite statements that I've ever read on the incarnation, I read it in 2004. That's how much it impacted me. I even remember the year that I read it. Donald McLeod in a book called The Person of Christ. He says this about the pre-incarnate Son of God. He was adored by His Father, worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. Think about that. That's the human condition, isn't it? We are very vulnerable to all three. He was invulnerable for all eternity to these things. He existed in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness perfect. Such a condition was not something he had secured by effort. It was the way things were. And had always been. And there was no reason why they should change. But change they did. And there's at least... Two implications that flow from that thought that I think we see here in this passage in verses 5 to 6. First of all, try to envision the infinite distance between the glory and the honor of the Son of God, who is equal in essence and power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Envision the the infinite distance between the Son of God, pre-incarnate, and the most exalted humans in human history. Whatever gauge you hold to determine exalted humanity, whether it be character, talents, abilities, resources, physical appearance... Or impact on the culture. Just think about the most exalted humans that you can think of in in human history, even in today's culture. And the infinite distance between the glory and the honor of the Son of God and these persons. 
The very best that humanity has to offer. And that thought raises questions like, how much respect and honor do I really think others owe me? You see, that's the cause of problems in relationships. I am owed respect and you're not giving me the respect and the honor that I'm due. This puts our importance into perspective, doesn't it? And that is critical to unity. Unity in a church, unity in a marriage. Secondly, reflect on the fact that the eternal Son of God did not regard His equality with the Father as anything but a platform for giving. And incidentally, giving to people who didn't even ask Him to give to us. Sinners who were in rebellion to Him. To those who don't deserve it. Are there people in your lives who do not deserve your love and your respect? Well, He did not use His platform as the second person of the Godhead in any way but to give Himself away To the likes of us. In your home. In your marriage. In your workplace. In this church. Anywhere we may be tempted. To exploit our influence. For our benefit. And that is a real temptation isn't it? Consider the wonder. Of the son of God. That's what Paul is telling us. Who exhibited not self-seeking grasping, but self-sacrificing giving. This is intended to transform our hearts. And so we've seen the heights, the pinnacle from which this king descended. In verses 7 and 8, we're going to see the depths To which he descended. He said, but he emptied himself. The one who was equal in power and glory in essence to the Father and the Spirit emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So Paul describes the king's Dissension, if you will, as emptying himself. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this verse. What does he mean by emptying himself? Well, emptying is an expression that refers not to subtraction or reduction of his divine nature or his divine attributes. There have been a, there's been a movement since the 19th century called canonic Christology. That word canonic coming from this word to empty. That taught that when Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh, he was either no longer God or he emptied himself of his divine attributes or some of his divine attributes. Well, God cannot be God himself. You need to understand that. Even as Jesus Christ took on human flesh... 
He is infinite in His perfections. He has been infinite in His perfections for all eternity and will be infinite in His perfections for all eternity. And so emptying here does not refer to subtraction or reduction, but to addition. He took on human flesh, human nature. Indeed, Paul uses morphe again to affirm the full humanity of the Son of God. And so the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, always existed and will always exist as the full expression of what it means to be God. And this same divine person now becomes incarnate so that the Son of God now exists as the full expression of what it means to be a man. The term for this, and don't be scared of big terms, because it's a beautiful term, is hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. You go, I, I don't need to know that term. It's what we celebrate every Christmas. Indeed, it's what we should celebrate every day of our lives as Christians. Hypostatic union is the joining, the union of the two natures. The divine nature and the human nature. At the moment of conception in the womb of Mary. At that moment. In one person. So that the Son of God now is fully God. Fully man in one person. He's the God-man. So this is not, this emptying is not a subtraction. It's not a transformation. It's an addition. To say it another way, Paul's point is not that Jesus exchanged the form of God for the form of a servant. That's not his point. His point is that he now manifests the form of God in the form of a servant. That's remarkable condescension. He is manifesting the form of God in the form of a servant. I mean, you think about the people that are the most credentialed in our culture, and typically these people will not go low. They're too credentialed. Their status is too great. To go low. And the one who was infinitely credentialed. God of very God. Now manifest his godness if you will. In the form of a slave. Paul is giving us the standard. Of what it means to be humble. If you can't love the people around you, you're too high. You're too exalted. And that's like a worm exalting itself to a human being. And that's the glory of the incarnation. In the flesh. Now, verses 7 and 8, we've looked at verse 7, gives us three movements in this incarnation, I think, that drives this home. We just saw this in verse 7. The pre-incarnational Christ took the form of a servant. That's radical. 
Then again, Donald McLeod says he became a slave without rights. Doesn't mean that he became a slave in the traditional sense in the Roman Empire. He became a slave to the mission. The mission was to save people like us. He became a slave without rights who could not turn to those crucifying him and say, do you know who I am? Isn't that remarkable? How many times have we heard celebrities, athletes, politicians get pulled over for a DUI? And what do they say to the policeman? Do you know who I am? Compared to the infinite Son of God, you are a lowly worm. That's who you are. Or how many times have you allowed an argument to just explode because in essence you say to your spouse, do you know who you're talking to? You're not going to talk to me like that. What Paul is giving us is the answer to all human conflict. Doctrine matters, in other words. In other words, the Son of God, the eternal Son, who who had all the rights and privileges of deity, became a nobody and submitted to His Father's will for us. And in verse 8, we see the second and third movements in this incarnation. Notice verse 8. And being found in human form. Now in a a world where the philosophical thought of the day, there was a low view of the material world in many places. You know, right? Plato and his understanding of the material world, very low. The the famous phrase was somatoma, the, the body is a tomb. And the notion that God would put on Human material flesh was just radical. It says he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even, Paul says, even death on the cross. The Son of God took on human likeness to be found in human form. Which means he became all that we are. Except without sin. Let me say that again. He became all that we are, yet without sin. Why? He is assuming humanity so that he can save humanity. And then the third movement we see he submitted himself to the death. Even the death of the cross. This was the lowest one could go. Crucifixion remains. And it certainly was then. The cruelest form. Of punishment. That anyone could ever experience. If you were a citizen of Rome. It was very hard to. To be charged with such a crime that you would be crucified. The Roman citizens were virtually immune to it. They, they, they didn't have to worry about crucifixion. Unless you did something really heinous. Like try to assassinate the Caesar. 
crucifixion was relegated to the, the lowest of classes, slaves, and terrorists. Generally, the victim was first tortured, and there were various means by which torture took place. And so before they were even taken to the cross, they were tortured. And then they were bound to the cross by a spear and uh, nails and rope. But they didn't die immediately. It would generally take days for the criminal to die. They would, they would bleed profusely, obviously. They would hunger. They would thirst. And wild animals would often eat them, attack them. But ultimately, they would generally die by suffocation. Can you imagine a worse way to die? And that wasn't even the main issue. Of the cross. They estimate some 10,000 people died in Roman history by way of the cross. The main issue was that he was cursed of his father. That's what Galatians 3 tells us. He, he took the wrath of God. That's the main issue of the cross. Besides the physical suffering. He took the wrath of God. He was abandoned of God. That's why he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was done pro nobis. It's the Latin. And I love that phrase. It was famously used for us. It was used. He came for us as our substitute, as our covenant servant. When we did not deserve it. Again, what Paul is doing, he's addressing the wicked disunity in the church. Disunity is always wicked if you're a Christian. Because it bears false witness against an accomplishment of the cross. Which is reconciliation. And he went... To the lowest depths from the highest pinnacle for us who deserve nothing but judgment. As we read this morning, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Perhaps for a good man one would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us so that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Indeed. It seems that Jesus, or Paul, is depicting Jesus here as Adam in reverse. Adam in reverse. He's coming to save Adam's race. And so he comes as the last Adam, the Adam in reverse. Think about this. His being in the form of God, but not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now contrast that with Adam. Adam was created, not in the form of God. God is God for all eternity. But he was created as the image and in the likeness of God. But he grasped after equality with God. What did the serpent say to him? The day you eat of this, 
you will be like God. Secondly, the Son of God emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He did what Adam failed to do, to faithfully serve God as our representative. Do you realize Adam was representing us in the garden? There was a covenant made in the garden. And he was representing us. And he went AWOL. But the incarnate son became obedient to the point of death. Romans 5 makes that so clear. Romans 5 may be one of the most neglected passages of scripture in all the Bible. Adam's disobedience brought sin and death into the world. Paul says that, Romans 5, 12, he says, Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death to all men, for all have sinned in Adam. But then he says in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, by the one man's obedience, many were made righteous. And so, I believe the Apostle Paul is depicting the Son of God here as the reverse of Adam. To reverse the curse of Adam's race. So he came to undo the disobedience of Adam and experience the judgment which Adam brought in full force on the human race. And our union in Christ should lead us to imitate him. Not in the sense that we've redeemed. No. There's one redeemer. But in the two-four sense. Again, look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Apply that text. Not in a discriminatory way. Uh, to the people I like, I'll do that. To the people I enjoy hanging out with, I'll do that. And when my, my spouse is worthy of that, I'll do that. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that is the Christian life. That and nothing else. That's the Christian life. It's not conditioned upon the other's worth. Because the Son of God made himself of nothing to people who did not deserve it. It's his point. That's what true humility is. In the West today, success is often measured by accumulation. You look at somebody who's accumulated the cars and the houses, you go, ah, it's a, uh, that's a successful person. Our power, our position, our prestige, that's success. Or, in my world, a big church, a prestigious pulpit, a lucrative book deal. In Jesus, success is measured by generosity, humility, service, even to those who do not deserve it. Indeed, In keeping with the incognito king's descent for us, a gospel humble person, 
All right? And it's only by the gospel we can be humble. You can fake humility without the gospel. There's a lot of fake humble people. But deep inside inside they're eat up with pride. In fact, they take pride in their humility. But a a gospel humble person thinks of himself, herself less, and others more. That's a remarkable statement. Based on what we see in our passage. Secondly, a gospel humble person is content to be eclipsed by others. There were kings and princes and Caesars that eclipsed the true king in his day. At least before the eyes of sinful men. A gospel humble person accepts the circumstances and the conditions that God sees best for him or her. How do you know a person has accepted that? Contentment, a grateful heart, and the absence of complaint. Contentment, gratitude, and the absence of complaint. The absence of gossip. The absence of slander. Internally, the absence of anxiety. The absence of fear and discouragement. And the gospel humble person will stoop to the lowest person and to the lowest task for the sake of Christ. And not just to the lowest person, to the persons who get under your skin. To the spouse who can get under your skin at times. I'm glad Heather doesn't have one like that. Given Jesus' example, none of us can ever humble ourselves too much. You can't humble yourself too much. Think about this. The sheer heart. Let's envision this. Eternal Son of God in infinite bliss and blessedness. Immune to all pain, all sin, The sheer horror of life among sinners for one who is so infinitely morally and spiritually sensitive and pure. Imagine that. The sheer horror of now doing life among sinners for one such as that. None of us can ever rightly say... Enough. I deserve better. We can't. But understand, as we close, yes, he came as our example. He came to redeem us from the penalty of sin. Yes, all of that is true. It's crucial. It's fundamental. But he also came to reorient the inclinations of our sinful hearts so that our mindset, let this mind in you, progressively becomes like his mindset.
That's Paul's point. And when a church meditates that on that and allows that to permeate their thinking, their affections, and a church and individuals in the church, individuals in a marriage, are willing to repent for not having that mindset and are willing to cry out in doxological desperation that the Spirit of Christ would form Christ in us so that we would have that mindset. That is transformative. And that is what Paul desires for Fisherville Church. Let's pray.